Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. We'll be starting a new season of Jury Duty on February 28th with our examination of the Kenosha, Wisconsin murder trial of Kyle Rittenhouse. You can find a trailer for that new season in our feed. However, before we start Jury Duty Season 4, we are revisiting the trial of Robert Durst, which we covered in Seasons 1 and 2 of this podcast. Jury Duty has secured exclusive interviews with two of the jurors, Carmen Kliteka and John Okanishi, who were part of the Los Angeles panel that convicted Robert Durst of the murder of his good friend, Susan Berman. In our last episode, we heard Carmen and John recall the testimonies of those who have remained steadfastly loyal to Robert Durst. In this episode, Carmen and John offer their memories of the early portion of Robert Durst's marathon 14-day residence on the witness stand. At the end of the episode, we will relive some of the key moments that they mention by playing excerpts of the trial audio that they reference. That's all coming up right after the break. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We begin today's excerpts from my conversation with juror number 12 and jury foreperson Carmen Kleteka by asking her about her memory of the early days of Robert Durst's direct testimony under the questioning of his attorney, Dick DeGarren. Let's talk about Robert Durst on the witness stand. When Robert Durst first took the stand and Dick DeGarren started asking him questions, what were the first things that came to your mind? What was your first response, if you can remember it? I was surprised. Well, my first clue that something was going on is that when I arrived at the courthouse, there were a lot of journalists and there was a lot of activity um, outside. And I thought, you know, maybe he would be taking the stand. But when I actually saw him, I was very surprised. I couldn't believe that, uh, one, the defense was going to do that as part of their strategy to have him testify. I also wondered if they had anything to do with it. I wondered if this is something he decided unilaterally and was not going to take anyone else's advice. And he was going to do it anyway, because that's what he wanted to do. As he started answering questions, how did you find the back and forth between him and Dick DeGarren to be? Well, I thought that he was answering uh, questions that had been prepared for him ahead of time. And he was giving answers that he had already practiced giving. It just looked very rehearsed, like a performance designed specifically to trigger a sympathetic response from us so we can uh, feel sorry for him so that he can seem like a person who has endured significant trauma. And I think it was designed so also so we can think about this might be a reason for why he did what he did, much like what they did with the special needs when they alluded to him having some sort of spectrum disorder. I think they're just looking for some sort of explanation. 
What did you make of his testimony about his relationship with Susan Berman? That testimony, I thought it was believable. They described what their relationship was like, how they met. I thought that Robert Durst actually probably gave true details about what the relationship was like. And I'm not so sure about, you know, the orphan connection that they had. They sort of highlighted the fact that Susan lost her mother and uh, Robert Durst uh, lost his mother. So they had this very strong connection because of that. That just sort of, I don't know, it seemed kind of weird to me. I lost my mother when I was two. And I can tell you personally, I've never made a connection with somebody or befriended somebody because of that. It's just kind of weird. So I I wondered if maybe they were using that as well to sort of play on the jury's emotion. But do you think he genuinely was fond of Susan? I think he was, yes. And I don't mean that like in the way that, that a normal person is fond of their friends. I think he was fond of her in a Bob Durst sort of way. And she is probably the friend he was most fond of, aside from Nick Shaven. What about what he had to say about Kathy? Do you think that there was ever a genuine relationship there? I do. I think there was. And it was in that weird Bob Durst kind of way. Can you unpack that a little bit, that weird Bob Durst kind of way? So, you know, in spending, you know, all this time listening to all this evidence and testimony and, you know, spending 18 months on that case, I made uh, my own assessment of him and why I thought maybe these people were friends with him. I don't think like he was a like terrible person, 100%. I actually did see glimmers of another side of him, even while we were in the courtroom. And I think this is what the, the other people saw. He actually has like an endearing quality to him. It's kind of weird. And I feel weird saying it. But in some ways, he was like, he had like this helplessness about him, like childlike. And I think that was sort of endearing to, to some people. And, and I wonder if maybe that's, that's why Kathy and Susan were attracted to him. I don't know. I wondered if, you know, they, they wanted to help him. Also, he has a, an, an interesting sense of humor, which came through in his testimony. Uh, some people have uh, referred to him as um, uh, having a sort of a charm. And I found him at times endearing. During his second day on the stand, Durst talked about Kathy going to medical school. And during the conversation, under questioning from Dick DeGaron, he implied that his family got her into medical school and then went on to talk about Kathy's drug use. He also talked about the kicking of Peter Schwartz and that somehow Peter Schwartz's face hit his foot. Tell me about the experience of listening to Robert Durst talk about these things. Well, first of all, let me tell you that all the evidence that had been presented and all the hours and hours of witness testimony that we saw, it was uh, pretty clear to me what what had happened. You know, there was still like a little doubt after hearing Robert Durst on the stand. That little bit of doubt that was left, it's completely erased for me. So I was really glad that he took the stand because he made 
my job as a juror infinitely easier. So having said that, going back to uh, your question and what, what I thought about him uh, talking about his wife having gotten into medical school only because of his family and their connections, I found that pretty offensive. As you can imagine, I don't think that's the case. And it was shown that she had done the work to get herself into medical school and that she had a, a background in uh, nursing and in the medical field already. And there's a lot of steps that a person has to take in preparation to enter medical school. It doesn't take just a phone call to get in. And it was shown that, that she did that. In fact, I think it was shown that she took steps to actually do it quietly. So it was, I thought it was offensive. And then Durst's account of the Peter Schwartz incident, what did you make of his version of the events that resulted in Schwartz having a fractured orbital bone? That story that they gave was absolutely ridiculous. I thought it was made up by a 10-year-old. Actually, I don't know, maybe a 10-year-old would have come up with a better story. I really expected something better than that, especially from those very fancy and expensive defense lawyers. They had a huge team. Maybe if they uh, sat down and had a one-hour meeting, they would have come up with a better story than that, I would think. I don't know. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer, so I don't know. Over the course of the end of the second day of his testimony and the beginning of the third day, he's recounting what he did when Kathy disappeared. Did you find yourself wondering what DeGaron's strategy was in questioning Durst about this? I thought Dick DeGaron, he had a, a pretty difficult job to do, given everything that had been presented. And now he's got Bob on the stand and who knows what he's going to say. And he sort of has to just put out fires, essentially. So he's sort of doing like a juggling act. So as far as a, a strategy, uh, when he was asking Bob what he did, I thought that DeGaron was trying to show that, you know, he, he was a concerned husband, but he also knew that she she was very busy and she had this busy schedule. So he was trying to show that it was not something unusual that he waited like five days to report her missing. What did you make of when DeGaron asked Bob a question about her being drunk on the last night before her disappearance and Durst responding that Kathy was in drug rehab at Lenox Hill Hospital? Well, that goes back to the opening statement when Dick DeGaron introduced the victims. There was a common theme there with the with the victims and it was that they were being vilified. And I immediately did not appreciate that. I didn't like that one bit. And I, I knew what they were doing and maybe it worked in Texas and maybe it works in his previous case, maybe it works with a bunch of their cases. They're they are very experienced, but and I mean what do I know? But to me, I, I didn't like that one bit. I thought it showed an enormous lack of respect. So uh, this theme continued on throughout the, the trial. And then we see it again with Bob's testimony. And they bring this up again. That's one of their strategies is to try and establish that 
Kathy Durst is a drug addict, a, a drunk, you know, wild. She would run off with men, whatever. But, you know, it doesn't make sense because you can't have both. You can't be a wild, crazy drug addict and alcoholic and also a medical student who's gone through a rigorous program and has excelled in some of those areas and is actually about to go into residency. Those two things don't, doesn't make sense that they coexist. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We now return to my interview with juror number two, John Okanishi, and hear his memories of Robert Durst's first two days on the witness stand. I want to talk about Robert Durst's testimony. And when Robert Durst took the stand, you mentioned that you had a bit of an epiphany about the Galveston jury as Dick DeGuerin was questioning him. Tell me a bit more about your initial impressions of Robert Durst on the stand. Well, Robert Durst, you know, we, it was weeks and weeks and we, you know, before he took the stand and every day, you know, we would see this frail old man sitting across the room, you know, he had his head shaved, you know, these big, uh, ugly stints, you know, were showing and he always had the catheter bag, you know, exposed, which I thought was interesting. I would have think, you know, they would have, you know, covered it up. But here's a guy, he he just looked, he looked out of it. And a few times, I, I think, you know, he had even, um, you know, fallen asleep during the trial. So my expectation before he took the stand was, you know, th- this is a guy who's not even going to last an hour under you know, cross-examination. We had seen a Mr. Lewin just, you know, could give these devastating cross-examinations and make healthy people wince and feel uncomfortable and not want to be there. How is, how is Robert Durst in his condition going to survive that? You know, is, are his men, mental faculties even at the point where he could testify? That was the thing that, you know, um, I, always, I always wondered. But when Durst, you know, took the stand, to me, he was surprisingly more articulate and aware than I would have expected. And during the initial um, interview uh, by the defense, by Mr. DeGuerin, you know, he would talk about things in such, you know, detail where, gosh, you know, how could anyone go into that much detail unless it was, unless it was the truth? And so I thought to myself, if this is the same testimony or same type of testimony that he gave to the Texas jury, I could understand how they would find him credible. There were short moments where up until that point, I said, you know, I would think, gosh, you know, all the evidence is completely weighing against him. But in the those few moments that he was going into credible detail about things, I, I I kind of, you know, thought, gosh, maybe, maybe he might be, you know, telling the truth in some of these things. 
And just like, you know, that documentary was called The Jinx. Yeah, this he is the, the victim of the worst luck anyone has ever experienced. So it wasn't until the cross-examination by Mr. Lewin that any benefit of the doubt that I gave him evaporated. We are now going to relive some of the impactful moments mentioned by Carmen and John in their reflections on the early portions of Robert Durst's testimony during the direct examination by Dick DeGarren. Bob, did you kill Susan Berman? No. Do you know who did? No, I do not. Are you hard of hearing? I am hard of hearing. You have... Uh, Hearing aids, do they help? I have hearing aids. Do they help? Yes. And the catheter that you mentioned, of course, is visible to the jurors, the tube coming down from your leg and into the device on your wheelchair. Do you want me to hold it up? No. Before your mother died, who among your family did you favor, and who among your family did your brother Douglas favor? From what I remember as a little kid, whether we were playing go fish, or uno, or frisbee, or whatever, it was always mommy and bobby against daddy and Douglas. I always loved and loved my mother, and I would make an effort to get along with my father. What is your recollection of that night when she died? My grandfather came into my bedroom and woke me up, walked me out into the hall, pointed out the hall window and said, look, Bobby, there's mommy on the roof. I looked out the window and there was mommy on the roof. Now my grandfather did not say, Good God, there's mommy on the roof. It was just very flat. There's mommy on the roof. Wave at mommy. So I waved at mommy. Next we hear some of Durst's testimony about his relationship with Susan Berman. What did you find in common with you and Susan? Well, both of us were raised by other others than our parents. Her parents were both dead. Her father died when she was seven. Her mother died when she was 12. My father, my mother died when I was seven. My father couldn't handle me because I kept running away and he kept sending me to see psychiatrists. We were both rich. Susan had a trust fund and paid her $2,500 a month. Susan had a Mercedes-Benz SL. That first night we met, and it got to be morning, she took me out to her car, and we drove to Ship's Restaurant in Westwood, and we pretty much talked until it was lunchtime. Later in that same day, DeGarren asked Durst how he met the woman who would become his first wife. Stewart called me up and said that two cute girls had just moved into the building where he was renting an apartment. He brought them over to my apartment and we went out to dinner. One of them 
was Kathy McCormick. Kathy McCormick and I got along very, very well. So tell us from that very first moment, what was your impression of Kathy? She was pretty and she was interesting. We could talk for a long time. We stayed up most of the night just talking to one another. Did you fall in love? Yeah, I, we were both in love. We both liked to be each other. A typical day, Cassie and I would walk from our the downstairs of this house we had rented to the store. It was about half a mile. I'd work in the store all day and walk home. Part of the house that we rented used wood for heat. So we learned about how to cut up logs using a bow saw. That gets us to 1971? In 1971, we decided we would get married. My initial reaction, I wanted to make sure Kathy was aware that I did not want to have children. Now, you mentioned your honeymoon. Did you and Kathy take a honeymoon? Yeah, so we got a van. What kind we of spent a lot of time. What kind of van? Ford. All right. And we built all kinds of stuff in the van. We had a, a mattress and an icebox and some kind of a stove. And we took two months and drove around the country. Oh, we visited my baby brother Tommy in San Francisco. Did you? travel around the country and live in your van for a couple of months? Yes. Did you need to live in a van traveling around the country and sleep uh, by the side of the road? Absolutely not. Why did you do it? What I wanted to do. If Kathy what wanted we to wanted to do. And how was it? It was fun. DeGuerin also invited Durst to assert that his family had a hand in getting Kathy into medical school. So we told Dad one night about our routine of applying to medical schools one a week. Did you know whether or not uh, the Durst family or the Durst organization or your father or your grandfather had any connection uh, to Einstein? That's all I knew. I knew that my grandfather, Joseph Durst, was a quote-unquote founder of Howard Einstein Medical Center. I have no idea how much you had to donate to be a founder, but we're talking about substantial dollars. So when Kathy brought up, Dad said, have you applied to Albert Einstein? Kathy said that she was doing the easiest ones first. And she hadn't gotten to Albert Einstein yet. So Dad said, apply to Albert Einstein, and I will call Jack Weiler. Who was Jack Weiler? Jack Weiler was the largest donor to Albert Einstein. So when Dad called him up and said, my daughter-in-law has applied to Albert Einstein, I don't know where the conversation went, but I believe that that is the reason Kathy was eventually 
accepted at Albert Einstein. Here is Durst's suggestion that it was Peter Schwartz's face that assaulted his foot. Peter Schwartz was standing up, working on one of the dollar bills to roll it up. I said to him, it's late. You're the only guy that's still here. You should leave. He said, I will leave when I'm good and ready to leave. So what happened next? I leaned forward across the coffee table and upended the, the, the dinner plate with the cocaine on it. Peter Schwartz grabbed me by my shoulders and the two of us fell down. You've heard him describe that you kicked him. Did you kick him? Not when we fell down, I think. He hit his face on the coffee table. He might have hit his face on my foot. Next, we have Durst's assertion that Kathy Durst was in a 12 to 20 hour per week drug rehab program while she was a full-time medical school student. Did you talk about her condition when she came home uh, on Sunday? That is, you told the jury that in your thought she was loaded. Did you say anything to the uh, troopers about that? I told them that when I saw her Sunday, she had drank a lot. I think I also told them about her being in the drug rehabilitation program at Lenox Hill Hospital. All right. Uh, it's the end of 1981 going into 1982. Well, how aware were you of her schooling. I was not that aware of her schooling, but I knew that she had signed up for a how to get off the drugs course at Lenox Hill Hospital. Lenox Hill Hospital from the Upper East Side of New York, which is considered the most expensive zip code in the country. Let me stop you there. Uh, when did Kathy sign up for this uh, drug uh, course at uh, Around Lenox Hill. Thanksgiving of 1981. What was your understanding about what that program was about? It was an outpatient clinic, I guess. You went four or five days a week for three or four hours. They did not believe in cold turkey. Their theory was if their patients can decrease whatever it's doing that they don't want to do, and that's an accomplishment. Whether they were smoking cigarettes or shooting heroin, as long as the patient did less of it every week, they considered that a success. Did Kathy complete that course, if you know? I don't think she did, no. I sort of found out about it by accident. Because Kathy was on the phone talking to somebody else who was in the program. That concludes this bonus episode of Jury Duty. Join us on our next episode as we hear more from Carmen and John about their memories of the direct testimony portion of Robert Durst's marathon 14-day residence on the witness stand. 
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, produced, and hosted by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracon. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty.